Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been and that and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. We're going to be looking at verses nine through 14, but 15 provides part of the point of this passage. And we're going to come back and visit it in Ecclesiastes chapter three. We are invited to consider God's plans. The preacher examines earthly events from a human perspective, time from a human perspective, and then he begins to draw some tentative conclusions. God and God alone can separate time from eternity. So the chapter began with an exhortation, remember, to look up because God orders time. We look up and we see the sun go up and the sun go down. We see the moon in its phases. We see the seasons. And now the preacher invites the reader to look inside his or her heart. And there's a reason why, because God has placed eternity in our hearts in verses 9 through 14. And by the way. In the verses that end the chapter, the reader will be asked to look ahead because in the not too distant future, death is coming. It says in verses 15 through 22. So the preacher will shift his emphasis from looking around to looking within and he'll now include God in the equation. As a matter of fact, when we come to this little gem, when we come to this little pool of water in Ecclesiastes chapter one and chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, it's been like we've been wandering, wandering in a desert looking for water, looking for refreshment and nourishment. And now we find an oasis in the middle of the the book. And again, in verse nine, he repeats the opening question. That we found at the very beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes is all this labor worth it in light of new evidence. Solomon has said, "Okay, guess what? In light of this new evidence, we're going to give three answers in verse 10. Man's life is a gift from God in verse 11. Man's life is linked with eternity. And in verses 12 through 14, Man's life can be enjoyed in the here and now. And so we asked the big question. What is God's plan? And we can apply that in a number of different ways, can't we? We can say, what is God's plan for humanity? What is God's plan for 
our civilization? What is God's plan for our country? What is God's plan for the church? What is God's plan for you? What is the what is God's plan for me? What is God's all encompassing plan? How do I fit into that plan? And Solomon, the preacher, is even willing to entertain and ask the question, does God have a plan? Now, remember, if the question is, is life meaningful? Is there a God? Does this God have a plan? How will God bring the plan to fruition? The Bible makes it clear. That the plan of salvation exists for human beings in order to have friendship and fellowship with God. You see, you may open up your Bible and you may turn to Genesis chapter one, verse one. You may begin to go down the table of contents of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You go through the books of the Bible and you begin to ask and answer the question, what is God's plan? And God's plan has all could be summed up in a single word. Redemption. God's plan is to take sinners and to reconcile them back to God. That's the idea. Now, since God's plan is to save people, since God's plan is to bring you and me into a position of friendship and fellowship with God, think about the Bible in terms of that plan. When you read about Adam and when you read about Enoch and when you read about Noah and when you read about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, when you read about God's plan, all of the plan of the story is to push you closer and closer and closer to a redemptive moment. The moment when Jesus Christ lives and dies and rises from the dead. Now, in the opening part of chapter three, remember, we've learned there's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to sow. There's a time to tear. There's a time to plant. There's a time to reap. There's a time to kill. There's a time to heal. There's a time of war. There's a time of peace. And God is a big enough God to weave the cosmic circumstances of existence into his plan and to include you in that part, in that plan. That's the point. And so, again, in verse nine, look what it says. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? Remember, he's reintroducing the theme. Verse three of chapter one. What profit has a man from all his labor from which he toils under the sun? Spring, summer, winter, fall, a year, a decade, a life. What is it all about? What does it profit? What does my life mean? What have I gained? What have I accomplished? And so Solomon, again, is forcing the philosophical naturalist or the skeptic or the doubter or the person, the person who has no time for God. To think about God, to make time for God. 
Remember, the preacher's message is 3,000 years old. But remember, he's already talked about the things that you have to think about. The preacher embraces all of our frustration. He examines what we think. He examines what will fulfill us. He talks about work. He talks about sex. He talks about injustice. He talks about friendship. He talks about happiness. He talks about insecurity. He talks about suffering. He talks about confusion. He talks about emptiness. It's shocking that this is in the Bible. Because these are all the same things that people are talking about all over the world. The preacher asks what you are screaming. When you boil life down to the most fundamental basics. What do we get out of life? Life without God is a long, lonely road. Without God, the preacher has said, it's meaningless. It's empty. What's the profit? Verse 9. What's the purpose? Verse 10. Solomon says, if I'm here and then I die, it would make just as much sense as if I were never born, as if I never lived. And, and I'm sure that at least at some moment in your life, you have asked the question, would the world be substantially different if I were never born? Would there still be an America? Would there still be this? Would there still be that? What would life be like if for whatever reason you could be blotted out of existence? Now, the reason why this becomes such an important issue is this is probably one of the reasons why the philosophical naturalist or the liberal atheist or the skeptic or the doubter or the agnostic might justify abortion. Can you imagine you get pregnant and a woman or a man says this to themselves? What difference does this baby make? This baby has never been born. If I destroy this baby in my womb... It would be like as if this baby were never here, the baby never lived, life never happened. If I can mentally and emotionally distance myself from the fact that the baby inside of me is a real human being, if there really is a time to be born, if there really is a time to die, why just... Why not just skip the birth portion and go right to death? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 if the, if the baby's never born, if the baby never cries, if the, the baby never exists. What does it matter? When I worked for the Department of Social Services, a young lady came to me and she said, it makes no sense to have this baby. I mean, we live in a world of profound abuse. Does it make sense to bring a baby into the world only to have the baby abused? And I said, what could be more abusive than killing the child? In verse 10, he writes, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. Now think about this for a moment. Solomon defines our task as a God-given task. In other words, we exist. Remember, he's now reintroducing the idea that we are here, that God has placed us here, that we have a God-given task. If you look at life as a series of events disconnected from God and disconnected from God's purposes, how can you occupy? If you're here 
not on God's terms and according to God's plans in order to accomplish God's purposes. Guess what you're free to do? You're free to make up your own plans and purposes and occupation. I'm here and I guess I just have to suffer. I'm here and I guess I just have to live with this person or with that person. I'm here and I guess I just have to do this. You know what I was told as a kid growing up? That a life with God was boring and empty. What a lie. Life with God is boring and empty. You know what the truth is? Life without God is boring and empty. How could you make such a fundamental mistake? Life without God is profitless and life without God is purposeless. And so the unbeliever suggests life in Christ is boring and empty. Hey, how would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? No, I want to go to hell and be with all my friends. Really? Is that your idea of fun? You may think that life is a strange gift. God, why did you make me? Why did you give me these parents? Why couldn't Bill Gates have been my dad? But think about this for just a moment. Here's what the Bible teaches. That life isn't an accident. That life is a gift from God. And by the way, if you believe, really believe, really believe in your heart that life is a gift from God, then you're going to be far more likely to thank God and accept God's gift. But if you do not believe that life is a gift from God, if you do not believe that life is a gift of God, but rather you believe that life is a trial, life is a burden, life is a curse, then what are you going to be far more likely to do? You're going to be far more likely to not only misunderstand your, the plan and the purpose that God has for you, but you're going to miss it altogether. And so in verse 11... He talks about eternity in a troubled heart. Look what it says. He has made everything beautiful in in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. When Solomon introduces this idea, he has made everything beautiful in its time. I need you to understand that the word beautiful here means way more than beautiful. It means more than just intrinsic beauty or moral beauty or aesthetic beauty. As a matter of fact, the word in the original language probably carries a much better sense of appropriate. In other words, this word, he has made everything appropriate or fitting. The idea is that God has made everything in such a way that All things that he has made fits together one with another. In other words, he has made everything beautiful in its time or appropriate in its way. You may not understand all that you've just read. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plan, a time to pluck up, a time to kill, a time to heal. You may not understand that, but God has ordered and orchestrated all things so that they fit together in such a way that his marvelous and magnificent plan is going to come true in your life. I'm almost certain, I don't have proof, 
But it could very well be that Paul had this verse in mind when he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. How in the world is God working out for good an unwanted baby? Or an unplanned pregnancy. How is God working out for good cancer? How is God working out for good this particular circumstance? That particular circumstance? How is God working it out for good that you're born in this circumstance under, under these particular um, conditions? How do you begin to ask and answer the question, why are you the way that you are? Why did God make you the way that he made you? Why did he place you in the exact time and space that he, he placed you in? Now, here's the point. Both preachers, both Paul and Solomon, don't guarantee that you're going to like everything about life. There may be things that happen that you loathe and detest. There may have been things that happened in your life where you were hurt, abused, victimized. You've had good days and you've had bad days and you've had trials and you've had difficulties and you've had suffering and you've had opportunity and you've had challenges. And in each and every one of those circumstances, God had a plan. God had a plan. God was willing and working and moving and pushing and nudging and coming closer and closer to the place where you would consider the truth about himself and the truth about yourself and the truth about your sin and the truth about your need for a savior. It makes perfect sense that we should fear God and keep his commandments. You know, think about this as you begin to look at it. I read the story of a man who sailed from the United States to England in in one of those one person rowboats. And in the celebration that followed his arrival, a reporter asked his wife if she was afraid that he would fail. And she said, it never occurred to me that he would fail. She said, I know the person who made the boat. It, It was her conviction that there was something that was made that was going to safely carry her husband from one shore to the other shore. You know what? When you come to the realization that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's in charge of every moment of every day of your life, That he was there when the sperm and the seed met and you began to form in your mother's womb. And every circumstance of every day that has followed your life, you begin to understand something that the plan that God has for you, he is going to bring it to fruition. He is going to see it to to the end. This is what the New Testament means when it says that he's. Not only is he causing all things to work together for your good, for those who love you, who are the called according to the purpose that he's orchestrating these things for his glory and your good. So when Solomon writes, he has put eternity in their hearts. It's the key phrase in the whole book. What does that mean? 
What does that mean that God has placed something inside of you, something inside of me, something inside of our conscience, a longing for eternity that doesn't seem to be satisfied or filled simply by the experiences and discoveries of life? What does that mean? What does it mean that it never goes away? What does it mean that there's something inside of us? That can't bring ourselves to believe that we are simply born and we simply live and we simply die. And then that's the end of it. By the way, this eternity in our heart doesn't go away. Until we experience forgiveness of sin and a relationship with God in Christ. When he says... He has put eternity in their hearts. Do you know what he's saying? If this life is all there is, and if you are born and you simply die, then why is it that every fiber in your being, every molecule in your body, everything inside of you says we were meant to live for so much more? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote, Creatures are not born with desires. Unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there must be such a thing as sex. If I find myself a desire in which there is no experience in the world that can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing, unquote. What is there that's inside of you that says... There must be a God. There must be a heaven. There must be a hell. But then there are powerful voices that whisper in our ears. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no God. And you respond to the voice. Then why do I feel like life should be meaningful? Why is there an emptiness and a longing inside of me that isn't satisfied by everything that I do? We were meant to live for so much more. If eternity doesn't exist, then why do we dream about eternity? If eternity doesn't exist, then why do we have the capacity to remember the past, experience the present and long for the future? How do you explain inside of the human heart? How do you explain the desire to live forever? And I'm going to ask you a question and be honest with the answer. Even the unbeliever, even the atheist. If they're willing to tell the truth, if you ask them the question, if you had the opportunity to live forever, would you? What will they tell you? 
Why does the atheistic naturalist, why does the skeptic and the doubter have his head cut off and then cryogenically frozen in liquid nitrogen in the hopes that someone will find a cure in order to regenerate us so that we can live forever, even if it's in the absurdity of the physical dimension in which we're living right now? Why is it that an Isaac Asimov will have his body burned and his ashes sent into space along with Gene Roddenberry, the the person who um, came up with Star Trek? Even the person who dreams about moving from one place to another, there's powerful forces at work. Why? Because eternity is in our hearts. The challenge for the unbeliever is to try and create an eternity where God doesn't exist. Even the unbeliever will say, I want to live forever, but I just don't want God to be a part of my forever. And you know what? You know what? One of the things that most people are unwilling to come to grips with, and that is whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, whether you're saved or not saved, whether you're whoever you are, and no matter where you are, every single human being who comes into existence will live forever somewhere. They'll live in heaven with Jesus Or they won't live in heaven with Jesus. But they will exist. I wonder, I wonder if this is the passage that prompted Augustine to write, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they learn to rest in you. Again, C.S. Lewis writes, quote, our heavenly Father has provided many delightful ends for us along our journey, but he takes great care to see that we do not mistake any of them for home. I love Chick-fil-A. I could stop there every single day and have a Chick-fil-A sandwich and a great big iced tea. But as wonderful as it is, it's not home. You can go to a particular place and you can go to a particular circumstance and as wonderful and as satisfying as it is, it is only a tiny taste of eternity. The Bible teaches that human beings were created in the image of God, that we were given dominion over creation according to Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 28. We were made differently from animals. We have eternity in our heart. In this sense, we are linked to forever. In other words, the moment that God places eternity in our heart, the temporal is linked to the eternal and earth is linked to heaven. And something that is temporary is linked to something that is forever. This is what caused Jacob to cry out and say, oh, that there was a ladder to heaven or actually in the book of Job. Oh, would would that there were to God that there were a ladder that stretched from heaven to the earth and that I could climb that ladder and discover the plan of God. And guess what? A ladder was let down from heaven when Jacob stops at Bethel and he places his head on a pillow and he goes to sleep and he has a dream. And as he has the dream, he sees a ladder come down down from heaven and he sees angels ascending and descending on the ladder and he realizes that there's a connection between heaven and earth. There's a connection between the temporal 
and the eternal. And the portal, the door, the gateway, is that gigantic space that's inside of your heart. And there's only two things that can fill that space. There's only two things that are monstrously large enough to fill that space. God or your pride. The wicked delusion. Because, you see, think about this carefully. For the person who denies that the historical God ceases to exist, people who don't believe in God don't just simply not believe in God. They don't just simply say, I don't believe in God. Whether they're willing to admit it or not, you know what they begin to believe in? They begin to believe in themselves. And what they have to offer. God has placed in every human heart the knowledge that this world isn't enough. And some may deny it. And some may suppress it. And some may use intellectual arguments to suppress it. And others can use chemicals or drugs to suppress the knowledge that eternity is inside of their heart. But the Lord in His infinite wisdom made some of us more curious than others. And the more curious we are and the greater capacities that we have, each and every person wakes up at some point And says, guess what? The emptiness isn't gone. And then he adds, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. How often have you said, look, I don't know how this is is going to work out in my, my life. I don't know how God is going to use this to fit into his plan. You may not be wise enough and you may not be smart enough and you may not have all of the information necessary to come to a conclusion of why God has done exactly what God has done in your life. But make no mistake about it. He does have a plan. Paul wrote that we see through a glass dimly. God has a plan. We don't always know what the plan is, but here's what I know. God's plan is good. And God's purpose is clear. But even in the goodness and the purpose, there's an element of mystery. As a matter of fact, if you continue to read, it says in verse 11, except that no man can find out the work that God does from Beginning to end. If you read Ecclesiastes, if you read the whole Bible, you may think, hey, look, I've read the Bible. I've read a lot of the Bible or I've read all of the Bible or you might be like me. And you may have read the Bible not once, not twice, not even three times or five times or ten times. Maybe you've read it over and over and over and over and over again. And you say, I've read the Bible over and over and over and over again. And I still have questions. Guess what? So do I. Can you imagine devoting your life to understanding the Bible And still having questions. Yeah, there are still mysteries. 
And there are still miseries. I'm reminded of what that Vance Havner used to say. He, he used to say, God writes over some of our days. We'll explain later. Have you ever had one of those days? Uh, God, I need to know the answer. And the answer is, I'll explain this later. No. I'd pretty much like to have the explanation now. You know what I've discovered in my Bible study? I look up the stupidest, strangest things. Question. How many times does the word why appear in the Bible? See, you're laughing just by the very fact that I'm even saying this. The word why appears 430 times in the Bible. And see, this may surprise you, but that comforts me. That I'm not the only person asking why. Catherine Marshall was married to Peter Marshall, and and she wrote about the anguish over the death of her beloved grandchild. And for years, she felt anger and even depression towards God for allowing such a thing to happen. And she prayed for the child's healing. She trusted that God would heal her grandchild. And then one day she was reading Isaiah chapter 53, you know, about the suffering Messiah. And she wrote, quote, I had read this passage many times before, even since Amy Catherine's death, but it had not affected me as as it did now, particularly the 10th verse. God made his own son suffer, but it was a good plan. More than good, it was perfect as only something from God can be. It was terribly important to the future of the human race that Jesus Christ would have his dark night experience on the cross. Yet what a desperate dark night it had to be for him to have cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And she concludes, When life hands us situations that we cannot understand. We have two choices. We can wallow in misery, separated from God. Or we can tell him. I need you. I need your presence in my life. I need you and I need your presence in my life more than I need understanding. I choose you, Lord. I trust you to give me understanding and an answer to all of my whys only if and when you choose. Unquote. And it's very, very different to read that than it is to experience it. And some of you may experience it. You may experience it when you get the unwelcome and unwanted call that something horrible and terrible has happened. You may experience it when the job that you thought you have, you no longer have it. You may experience it when the doctor says to you, it's cancer. It happened to me. I'll never forget, I'll never forget the day that my wife called me and she said, "Um, I just got back from the doctor, the results have come back, and um, 
it's a carcinoma and it's cancer and, um, and I have breast cancer. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking, I remember thinking to myself, I can ask why. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? What's happening here? Or I can say, look, this is happening. I know you, Lord, and I love you, Lord, and I trust you, Lord, and I know my wife knows you, and I know that she trusts you, and I know, I know, I know that you're a big enough God that if you want to respond to our prayers and heal her, you can, and if for whatever reason you want her to go through this, she, she will, and I trust you. And it was almost impossible at that point to see the plan and the purpose that God was going to uniquely and specifically weave together in order to use this as an opportunity, not only to trust God and to glorify God, but to minister to others. Hard, isn't it? We want answers and we want explanations, but God doesn't owe us every answer to every question on demand. We see darkly. And sometimes we see in a deep, dense fog, we see the evidence of beauty and design. We see out on the earth little hints that eternity must be real and heaven must exist. And now the preacher will invite us to do something even more difficult. He's going to invite us not to forfeit enjoyment because of what we don't understand in verse 12. And he's going to ask us to be mindful, not forgetful of the fact that God has given us life in verse 13. And that we're to bring ourselves to the place where we would rather fear God than fear life. Look at verse 12. I know that nothing is better for them to rejoice and to do good in their lives. Now, when we come to this particular portion, Solomon is going to mention four things which God has given to each human being. Not only has he placed eternity in your hearts, but he's done something else. We are given, number one, the ability to rejoice. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice. What does that mean? It means that you have the ability to hope in God and embrace the proper proper perspective. That's the idea. You have the ability to rejoice. You want to know why? Because God has placed eternity in your hearts because he is real and that his plan is real. And number two, we're also given the ability to do good in our lives, or this could be translated in our lifetime. We have the ability to rejoice again, which means the ability to have hope because we don't simply have a human perspective. We are also given a motivation to do good apart from selfishness or because we want the applause of a watching world. And so he says in verse 13, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. What does that mean? Number three, we're also given an appetite to eat and drink. We're given a God-given ability to desire and enjoy food. Aren't you glad? 
But not everything is illegal and sinful. Can I be honest with you? There's only one thing I like more than food. Free food. And guess what? Number four, we're also given the ability to see good in our labor. If we don't know God. If we don't trust God. If you don't know God and you don't trust God, it will move you away from the proper perspective. The Methodist preacher William Sangster was well known in England and he was diagnosed with a progressive disease called muscular atrophy. And he made four resolutions that he kept to the end of his life. He said, number one, I'll never complain. Number two, I will keep the home bright. Number three, I will count my blessings. And number four, I'm going to turn this to gain. I think that this is what Solomon had in mind when he talked about these things. We're not going to complain. We're going to keep our homes bright. We're going to count our blessings. We're going to turn it to gain. And so when you read this, it doesn't mean. Don't worry. Be happy. Remember that song? Don't worry. Be happy. Now, let me help you with this. Don't worry, be happy, disconnected from God is not smart. Because when you're disconnected from God, life is meaningless. Life is not exciting. It is monotonous. And this is the key concept. This is the key concept that the book of Ecclesiastes is inviting you to embrace. Is life meaningless or is it meaningful? Does it have value or no value? Is it true or is it false? Is it full or is it empty? And that's the key. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior... Your sins are forgiven. Heaven is your home. You are being prepared for eternity. That's the concept. Remember, part of the plan is to reconcile you to God. And in order to reconcile you to God, you first of all have to believe that he is, that you're estranged from him. Eternity has been placed in your heart. God has sent Jesus all of this, all of this Bible. It isn't just a religious construct in order to fill a void, in order to fool yourself into thinking you're happy. It is the real plan that God instituted in order to reconcile you to himself. The Puritan preacher Thomas Watson wrote, quote, eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. The way I would put it. If you're a Christian. This is as close to hell as you will ever be. If you're an unbeliever. Or a make believer. This is the closest to heaven that you will ever experience. And then it will be over with. The preacher points out our labor is the gift of God. 
Now think about that. If your life is a gift, and if your labor is a gift, you know what the preacher is suggesting? Not that work is meaningless, but that it is meaningful, that it is God who has given you the capacity to work. The air that you breathe or the pencil that you push or the broom or what the carpet that you clean or the light that you change or whatever it is that you do, whether you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, God has given you the ability to make bread and eat bread so that other people can make bread and eat bread. And if your life is a gift of God, and if your labor is a gift of God, guess what? Now you have a rare privilege. You can live your life for Him. And your labor is for Him. And you might think, how can I translate what I do to the glory of God? It's very, very easy. You put on the perspective that you should have always had. That your boss isn't that wicked, evil guy. (laughs) But that your true boss is the Lord. So it says in verse 14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. Now, Solomon will emphasize the quality of the labor, the quality of the work, the quality of the activity. Whatever God does, listen to what he's saying. If, it, if, if God truly is the source, it can't be temporal because he's not temporal. He's eternal. If he's placed eternity in your heart, then guess what? Eternity exists. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14 when he was talking to his friends when he only had a few hours to live? He said, I'm going to go. But if I'm going to go, I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself so that where I am, you'll be also. And then he said these remarkable words. He said, if it weren't true, I wouldn't tell you. I go to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. Whatever God does, it's never shallow. It's never superficial. It's always thorough. It's always complete. It could very well be that verse 14 in chapter 3 is one of the most powerful apologetic scriptures in all of the Bible. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Did God make you? Has he always loved you? Did he prepare a way for your sins to be forgiven? Did he give you a way so that you don't have to live an empty, meaningless life? The preacher describes it as never too little or never too much. Whatever it is that God has done, nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. Now, think about that for just a moment. It's his, the, the preacher's way of saying, there is nothing. I repeat, nothing. There is nothing. There is nothing missing from the work of God. There's not a gap. There's not something 
that needs to be done that's been left undone. So what does God do? He does things that are intended to cultivate honor and fear and respect. In other words, he is saying everything that God has done, he's done it in such a way that your response should be, wow, I believe that there is a God and I'm going to honor him and I'm going to obey him. He, he does the things that are intended to cultivate honor and fear and respect. God does it. Listen to what he says. So that men should fear him. God does what he does, not in order for you to accuse him. Or embarrass him. Or or diminish him. I love Wearsby's definition of the fear of God. He writes, it's not the cringing of a slave before a cruel master, but the submission of an obedient child to a loving parent. There's only one room in the human heart for one consuming fear. Either you will fear God. Or you'll fear everything else. Remember, I ask you the question, how many times does the word why appear in the Bible? Who remembers? 430. How often does fear of God or fear of the Lord occur in the Bible? I'm going to help you. A hundred and fourteen times. I'll give you an example. Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. Joshua 24.14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served. So what will it be? By the way, you will do one of these two things. You will come to fear God. Or you'll come to fear life itself. You'll be afraid of this life. Dr. Paul Tournier writes, quote, fear creates what it fears. Fear of war impels a country to take the very measures which unleash war. The fear of losing the love of a loved one provokes us to just... That lack of frankness which undermines love. The skier falls as soon as he is afraid that he's going to fall. Fear of failing an examination takes away the candidate's presence of mind and makes success more difficult. Unquote. Remember what fear of the Lord means. It means that you know him in such a way and that you love him in such a way and that you honor him in such a way that you begin to understand something that there's nothing. There is nothing. There is nothing more devastating. There is nothing more wrong than offending him. In a Sunday supplement of USA Today, it ran this story, fear what Americans are afraid of today. 54% are afraid or very afraid of being in a car crash. 53% are afraid or very afraid of having cancer. 50% are afraid or very afraid of inadequate Social Security. 49% are afraid or very afraid of not having enough money for retirement. 36% are afraid or very afraid of food poisoning from meat. That's because they don't eat at Chick-fil-A. 35% are afraid or very afraid of getting Alzheimer's. 34% are afraid or very afraid... uh, 
of pesticides and food. Thirty three percent are afraid or very afraid of being the victim of individual violence. Thirty two percent are afraid or very afraid of being unable to pay their debts. Thirty percent are afraid or very afraid of being exposed to foreign viruses. Twenty eight percent are afraid or very afraid of getting AIDS. Twenty five percent are afraid or very afraid of natural disasters. You know what I would have loved to have seen? How many of you are afraid or very afraid of dying? What is it that you fear? What is it that you're afraid of? Do you believe that you have to meet certain standards in order to feel good about yourself? Do you fear failure? Do you crave the approval of others to feel good about yourself? Is your fear rejection? Do you believe that those who fail are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished? Do you fear that what you are, you will always be? Are you afraid that you could never change? You could never be different. And that life is hopeless. But this is what the Bible says. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus justifies the guilty and then forgives them. Jesus reconciles the estranged so that they can be accepted by God. The sacrifice of Jesus proves that he loves us and wants to save us and has saved us and that we don't have to fear punishment by God and we don't have to fear being punished by others because the moment that Jesus saves you, he regenerates you, he makes you a new creation in Christ and you fundamentally have changed. Martin Luther made this interesting observation in his book Table Talk. God and the devil take opposite tactics in regard to fear. The Lord first allows us to become afraid so that he can relieve our fears and give us comfort. The devil, on the other hand, makes us feel secure in our pride and our sin so that we can later be overwhelmed with fear and despair. So what will it be? What do you choose? Do you choose to fear God? Or do you choose to fear life? And the uncertainties of life. My advice? 114 times in the Bible. Fear the Lord. Trust Him. Trust him. Believe him. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, you placed eternity in our hearts for good reason. Because there is an eternity. You've placed eternity in our hearts for good reason. Because this life isn't all there is. Lord, you've placed eternity in our hearts. Because you wanted to leave us with the lingering certainty that we were made for so much more. But we've lost ourselves. There's something inside of us 
that wants to experience forgiveness and wants to experience hope and wants to experience a reconciliation with you, that wants to experience friendship and fellowship with you. And that, Lord, you have a plan. And everything about that plan included forgiving us and reconciling us to you by Jesus. And so again, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be content to just simply look at this book and look at the words and know just a little bit more. Lord, it's fun to know more, but Lord, it's way more fun to know you, to be satisfied by you, to love you, to walk with you. Knowing that perfect love casts out fear. That if we could love you in a complete way, believe you in a complete way, trust you in a complete way, we'd never, we never, we never, ever have to be afraid ever again. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what Jesus has done. And Lord, I pray for that person who's listening to my voice right now and and perhaps they've never known you. Lord, they've never come to the place where they were willing to admit that they were a sinner and that that they needed a savior. They've never repented of their sin and they've never repented of their unbelief. But they want to know you and they want to experience forgiveness and they want to experience love and hope. Lord, I pray that they would pray this simple prayer inside of their hearts and mean it. Heavenly Father, I want to know you and love you and trust you. I know that my sin has separated me from you. And that Jesus is willing to forgive my sin. That he died on the cross for my sin and he rose from the dead and he's alive. And that my fear of never being able to to change is, is, is not worthy because you can change me. You can come inside of me and you can make me a new creation just like you promised And that's what I want, to live for you, to love you, to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.